Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to this uh, second edition of the podcast, A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill, and uh, just to explain in a nutshell, um, this podcast is basically about my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, and his journals, written in the 1840s about his journeys around Europe and um, subsequently the rest of the world. These journals that have been passed down uh, on my mother's side of the family, have, have never been made public before. So the idea of the podcast is that I will read from them, and as we follow William's observations, I will occasionally stop to explain the historical context and uh, the uh, the references to people and places that William mentions. If you want more background about the podcast, then please listen to the first introduction episode in the series. Uh, where I go into a bit more detail about the journals, their creation, and the links to myself and my family. So in this uh, second edition, William is uh, continuing his journey from uh, the UK down to Italy, where he's going to be employed as an engineer and driver on one of the first um, steam railways in Italy. And uh, when we finished the last podcast, William had just travelled by paddle steamer across the channel, and uh, he's arrived at Boulogne. At this point, William is uh, approached and all the other passengers are approached by these gentlemen called Duan, who are basically custom house officers, and they then inspect their bags to see if they've got anything that's liable to duty. Having done that, uh, William then goes on to describe a little bit about what he sees in the town of Boulogne. Having done all this, we were at liberty to look around us, but in the three short hours how the scene had changed. We had left the land of John Bull and roast beef, and we were now in the land of frogs and Frenchmen. We had parted from the people whose seriousness and systematic gravity is so well known, and now we were amongst a people whose vivacity, whose volubility of language, whose tendency to seize on the present moment and to forget the future, has also been as universally acknowledged. And I must say that, though it was not the first time I'd set foot on foreign soil, that never before or since has the feeling of loneliness sunk so deeply in my mind, so deeply as it did on that occasion. I do like that um, reference to roast beef and the land of frogs and Frenchmen, which, uh, of course, we're very familiar with now, and uh, having done a bit of research into that, the term of describing French people as, as frogs actually goes quite far back 
much further back than 1840. So uh, it's interesting to see how long these uh, kind of national characteristics have been in place. And uh, yeah, uh, it's just nice to hear that sort of reference from someone so long ago. We'd probably, in a more, shall we say, bigoted conversation, <laughs> even used today, um, these sort of colloquialisms that... Uh, they're enduring it's it's, uh, it's amazing really but uh, yeah there's references i think even sort of 200 years before this there are references to this um frogs and frenchmen and stuff which obviously most people think is uh derived from the fact that uh, french people eat frogs but um there are other uh, theories about how that um term came about as well anyway we'll carry on with uh, william's journal Two hours was all the time I spent in Boulogne, and I endeavoured to improve that short period as well as I was able in repairing by copious libations of brandy and wine the ravages of seasickness had committed to my stomach. Boulogne is a busy and active place. A great many English families reside here. It's divided into the upper and lower town, the latter of which is far superior to the former in the beauty of its houses and streets. Both parts together, I believe, contain somewhere about 16,000 inhabitants and 1,600 houses. At that time, they was building a handsome column on which the statue of Napoleon has since been placed to commemorate the foundation of the Order of the Legion of Honour by him in 1805. There are a cathedral, several other churches, a hospital, exchange, maritime court, a society for the promotion of agriculture, commerce and the arts, also a school for the instruction of navigation, large baths, manufactories of soaps, earthenware and linen and woollen clothes. So the next part of... The journal uh, is basically the journey down to Paris and uh, William travels by diligence, which is just basically another form of stagecoach. Left by diligence for Paris at half-past six o'clock, and passing through Aveville, a small market town, reached Montreal about eleven. Montreal is a large and strongly fortified town, and was formerly a place of considerable importance, but is its chiefly supported at present by travellers passing through to Paris, and vice versa, and a few petty manufacturers. On the following morning, when the day had broke, we were passing through a rich and highly cultivated country, abounding with vineyards and orchards and though it was far too early in the season to see them in their full beauty, I could form some idea of what they would be in the proper season. We passed through a great many clean and picturesque villages, and at about one o'clock arrived at Beauvais, where we stopped to dine. Beauvais is a large and fortified city. In the year 1443 it was besieged by the British, who failed in their attempts, and also by the Duke of Burgundy at the head of 80,000 men, but with as little success. In the last siege the women displayed the greatest courage under gender Hachette, so Jane de Hatchet, uh, her name's Hatchet because she uh, wielded an axe, basically. Jane de Hatchet, whose portrait is still preserved in the town hall, and the inhabitants are very proud of showing it to strangers. To commemorate this work and their bravery, an annual festival is held on the 10th of July, where the women walk first amidst the greatest honours and the profound respect of the male part of the population. The city contains a large and handsome cathedral, six colleges, a great many churches and several schools. We left Beauvais by a long avenue which contains many fine trees and passed through several pretty towns of which I particularly noticed Beaumont. We next arrived at Saint-Denis, 
an ancient town containing about 6,000 inhabitants. This town owes its celebrity to an extensive Benedictine monastery of whose foundation I heard the following account. The saint, Dionysius, to whom it is consecrated, having been sent from Rome into Gaul to preach the gospel, died by the hand of the public executioner about the end of the 3rd century. Catulla, a heathen lady, affected by the martyr's constancy, attained his body which had been thrown into the Seine, buried it in her garden, became a Christian, and erected a small chapel over his tomb, which was afterwards rebuilt on a more extensive plan by St Genevieve, and became in the 6th century one of the most flourishing abbeys. As I'll just explain here, the Benedictine Monastery of uh, St Denis is actually a very historical church, and it's probably akin to something like Westminster Abbey in London, because at one time, as you'll go on to hear, um, all the kings and queens of uh, France were, were buried there, and it's had a very sort of history of up and down, things happening to it during revolutions and things like that. There's several sort of origin stories. Uh, William's obviously been told this one about this this lady, Catilla, who buried St. Denis here. One of the most, if you like, more famous stories about its foundation is that St. Denis, or Dionys, as he mentions, St. Denis, after he was beheaded in Paris by the executioner there, who was, uh, if you like, a kind of Roman guard. So, so this is all happening in that period where Christianity is just entering into Roman Gaulish society. So he's preaching the Bible and Christianity to the, the local residents. Anyway, gets beheaded in Paris, near Montmartre apparently, and uh, actually managed to carry his own head to the spot where St. Denis uh, Benedictine Monastery is, and, and that's why he wanted to be buried there, and that's why the church is founded there. So uh, it's a good trick if you can do it. There were two other martyrs who were buried with him at this location as well, so it's not just St. Denis. I'll uh, go on to now read a little bit more of William's uh, description of it. The large edifice of St. Denis Monastery is still standing, the oldest Christian church in France. On the left was the principal entrance, a large door with two small doors at the side, ornamented with statues of the ancient saints and French kings carved in stone. The interior of the church was enriched by pious offerings and works of art. In the large vaults under the choir repose the remains of several kings of the first and second races, and all the rulers of the third race from Hugh Capet to Louis XVI. At present all the heads of the saints and kings at the entrance are wanting. The vaults also are vacant, all the bodies having been removed during the revolution of October 16, 1793. At that time, when the Queen's head was beheaded in Paris, the coffin of Louis XV was taken out of the vaults of Saint-Denis, and after a stormy debate, it was decided to throw the remains of all the kings, even those of Henry IV and Louis XIV, which were yet in a good degree preserved, entire and recognised with perfect certainty, into a pit, to melt down their leaden coffins on the spot, and to take away and melt into bullets, and whatever lead there was besides in the church, the covering of the roof not escaping. Napoleon's decree on the 20th of July 1806 made St. Denis again the burial place of the reigning. The church was repaired and ornaments marked the emblems of the new dynasty, particularly the large N. Napoleon had selected a vaulted room for a tomb of himself and consort, but then Louis XVIII obliterated from St. Denis all traces of Napoleon's rule, buried whatever bones of his ancestors could be found, especially the relics of Louis XVI and his family, in the ancient sepulchre of kings, and instituted canons whose duty is to protect the tombs from injury. 
Saint-Denis is about five miles north of Paris. So I'll just say at this point that William mentions that the Cathedral of Saint-Denis had been uh, restored in his description. And actually what happened was a couple of years after William's visit, a spire that had been erected as part of the restoration of the church actually collapsed under its own weight because the architect who'd done it didn't really understand Gothic architecture very well. So yeah, he was lucky if he wasn't. He'd been there two years later. Um, he could have been looking at the church while it was uh, collapsing, and it might well have uh, come down on his head. But uh, anyway, that was about two years, as I say, after he'd uh, he'd been there. I should also say that um, he says Saint Denis is five miles north of Paris. Now, of course, it's a, it's a suburb of Paris. Of course, there's been a huge expansion of the city in the time since uh, William was travelling there in the 1840s. So basically the next part is the rest of the journey on from Paris. After leaving Saint-Denis, the number of vehicles and passengers on foot increased considerably, but at the same time bearing not the slightest resemblance to any of the great roads in the vicinity of London. There was neither the speed nor the business-like activity that distinguished my fellow countrymen of that locality. Not the dashing equipages, that's a type of carriage, uh, with a horse and carriage with attendants, or the light and smart postilions, that's another word for coach drivers, of England, nor yet the fancy cabriolet with some proud and pampered sons of aristocracy, and that abortion of humanity clad in top boots and extra white inexpressibles, clipped a tyler so that last bit i really need to explain some of the words and phrases that he uses so cabriolet is another type of horse and carriage it's a two-wheeled horse and carriage i suppose a bit like you see in uh, old Sherlock holmes films where they get a handsome cab and it's just two wheels and a, a gent in the back with a coach driver and then he refers to these next couple of things I imagine he's talking of some fairly rich gent clad in top boots and extra white inexpressibles, a clept attire. So a clept is just another word for by the name of or called. But the word inexpressibles is a term for some very tight-fitting trousers that the gents of that era used to wear, famously Beau Brummel who was a bit of a fop and a dandy around London society, wore inexpressibles. And I think you can probably imagine there these white, very tight trousers that, as I say, lead little to the imagination around the nether area of gentlemen. Obviously, William has quite strong feelings <laughs> about this type of attire, uh, describing it as an abortion of humanity. Tight trousers that reveal the gentleman's behind and so forth, uh, or leave little love to the imagination for the ladies when it comes to the uh, physical attributes that are under them. The only thing, I've done a lot of research here, and it says eclept, so that's by the name of a tyler. Now, one of the things here is that it um, it could actually be typher or, or tizer. It was one of the words in the journals that, when originally written, was very hard to distinguish. So I sort of guess it's Typher, but it could be Tyler. So anyway, these inexpressible trousers called Typhers or Tylers 
whatever they are that uh, William objects to so much, seeing people wear around London, these ones are called Typhers or Tylers or or Tizers even. <laughs> like the old Tizer drink that you used to get. Probably not that. So yeah, Typhers or Tylers, if anyone does know what that actual term for that style of inexpressible may be, let me know. Anyway, whatever the name of these particular type of inexpressible trousers they are, it's pretty apparent to me that William is not a fan of the tight-fitting trouser. So um, in this next section, William's going on to describe his journey. And uh, the first part, he goes into a, a little bit more detail about the differences between the various stagecoaches that uh, he sees on his journey and other sights and sounds. So uh, he's just comparing, basically, the type of vehicles, stagecoaches, horses and carts and things that he'd see in London compared to Paris. But then there were others equally as picturesque. There was the French diligence, uniting in itself the triple properties of post-chase, stagecoach and omnibus, drawn by seven or eight white horses, generally three abreast, and proceeding at a safe and steady pace of five miles an hour. I noticed also a few gentlemen's carriages drawn by post-horses and mounted by tall, dirty-looking fellows in long coats bedizened by tassels and worsted lace, heavy broad-brimmed leather hats, and their lower extremities cased in immense jackboots, cracking immense whips and continually urging on the animals by loud and shrill cries. Their harness was formed principally of rope. There was the omnibus, too, drawn by three horses abreast and appearing to those acquainted with our own metropolis at a snail's pace. Verily, France, thou who called thyself Le Grand Nation, thou art even now a century behind the science of locomotion. There was horsemen in crowds, and the side paths were crowded by foot passengers in every variety of costume and colour. There was the staid citizen, the gay Parisianville, the peasant girls returning from the market with high-heeled shoes, short petticoats and large caps decorated with ribbons of every hue, but we have already passed along a fine avenue of trees and are at the barriers. One of the douanes mounts the diligence and after passing through some dark and narrow streets, the full blaze of the boulevards burst upon the sight. The boulevards was at one time the ramparts of the old city of Paris, but in consequence of the extension of the city and the erection of others at a greater distance, they was levelled, planted with trees, and now contain some of the finest shops in the world, and containing some of the splendid productions of the four quarters of the globe. They are about three miles in length, and extend in a semicircular direction from the Palace de la Bastille to the Place de Madeleine, adjoining the Rue de Honneur. In some parts of the boulevard, the trees are of immense size, but what the revolution of 1792 spared, that of 1830 affected great numbers of them, being cut down to form barricades in that struggle that cost Charles X his crown and elevated Louis-Philippe to that dignity, and has caused some parties to give him the title the King of the Barricades. Alighting at the office of the diligence in the Place de la Bourse, I proceeded at once to the Hotel de Bristol in the Rue Traversière Saint-Honneur, and having taken some refreshment, I went out with a friend to the Palais Royal. 
I think I'll just go into a little bit of the history at this point that William's talking about, because at this time, that King Louis-Philippe, who he references there, talking about the nickname as the, of the King of the Barricades, he is actually the King of France at the time, and he actually also happens to be the last king that France ever had. So he's, in that sense, I suppose, a pretty significant historical figure, and Charles X, who he'd taken over from own, as we know, in the 19th century, there were all these sort of revolutions that seemed to keep happening in France. But basically, he took over from the Charles X in 1830 after a revolution. That's the one he's talking about, because Charles X had become a bit more hardline in his attitude towards his power as king. And he sort of quite strongly believed in the divine right of kings and he was getting less and less happy to be if he was like a more constitutional monarchist and uh, and he started to impose various laws and things like that that really were uh, affecting people's civil liberties so he introduced a degree of press censorship and he also disbanded the uh, chamber of deputies which is equivalent to uh, our houses of parliament basically so um, he basically had dismissed all the members of parliament and of course by doing that at that point that became just too much <laughs> for the people of France and so they had another revolution in 1830 and so Charles X who'd been a Bourbon king a part of the Bourbon family he was replaced by Louis Philippe who was supported by the what they called the Orleanists and actually not very long after the time William's talking about in 1848 Louis Philippe was deposed and he was replaced by Napoleon III and that was what was known as the uh, the beginning of the Second Republic. And I will have to remind myself how Napoleon III is related to Napoleon I. He's certainly not his son. He's, uh, <laughs> he's his, is he his cousin? I shall endeavour to get the correct information for you on that one he was his nephew he was his nephew another example of poor research on my part i did do more modern european history for my level of course that was a long 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 time ago now so i've gotten a lot of it to be honest i've forgotten most of it about a week after i'd done the exam but there we are that's the purpose of exams for you so i suppose significantly i suppose it's that Louis Philippe, who's actually the king at this time when William is in Paris, was the last ever king of France. So that was his role. This next bit basically is William, now he's arrived in Paris, he's at the Hotel de Bristol. Uh, I don't know whether that's a theme hotel in uh, in Paris at the time. I don't know what particular Bristolian themes you would have in a, a hotel. Anyway, at this point, William actually spends quite a few days in Paris. And so really, this is the beginning of quite a long sequence where he describes the sights and sounds that he sees in Paris at that time, which is, is quite an insightful description of things, of how they were. So I think it's a really interesting bit of, if you like, social history.
The principal entrance of the Palais Royal is in the Rue Saint-Honneur, but on that evening I entered it from a passage in the Rue Richelieu and found myself in an immense gallery, the entire covering of the roof being glass, the sides filled with shops containing articles from all parts of the globe and of the most rich and costly description. At each end of the gallery are two small ones filled with stands for the sale of perfumery, toys, etc. Passing through these, we entered the garden, and the sight that burst upon the eye is astonishing. In the centre of the garden stands an immense fountain, throwing out not less than 24 streams of water to a height of 20 feet. In different parts are small enclosures planted with choice shrubs, and seats are placed in every direction. On a level with the garden, a vaulted gallery surrounds the building with 180 arcades, between every two of which is suspended a large lamp. They terminate on both sides in two vestibules adorned with magnificent columns over the arcades in the first storey, with lofty windows proportionate to the building. Above this is the second storey with lower windows, and above these are the windows in the roof, before which runs the terrace. Here, gratifications are held out to every appetite and to every desire. The bookshops afford the oldest and the newest, the most scientific and the most frivolous and licentious books of every language. Here meet all nations, all languages and all costumes. There is a splendid jeweller's shop I particularly noticed that fills three arcades and was lighted up by more than 50 wax candles, large mirrors also increasing the lights and the play of the different colours. The elegant shops of the milliners afford all that fancy can create with ribbon and gauze, with flowers and feathers. One lofty arch was glittering, another with the finest clothes, the richest eastern shawls, or the most delicate embroidery. Shops with splendid timepieces and watches alternated with others filled with beautiful porcelain ornaments of Wedgwood ware and of diamonds, others with gold chains, brilliant stars and orders, another word for badges, sword hilts of polished steel and silver others again exhaled the most delicious perfume with every article of toilet bonbons so that's sweets or confectionaries and mathematical instruments playthings and arms are here exhibited in every variety the most exquisite miniatures and paintings with the most splendid and highly finished engravings in one place you behold a shop filled with every article of dress made in the most fashionable style in another the most luxurious furniture lottery ticket sellers and money changers, seal engravers and pastry cooks. Eating houses with fruit vendors are all here crowded together too. I think this is a great extract here. Obviously, William's quite impressed by all the sights and sounds that he sees around him of um, this busy part of Paris. And uh, these shops obviously create quite an impression I don't know whether shopping in Paris was much more interesting and varied than uh, in London at the time. It sounds like it probably was from uh, William's reaction to all these things that he can see around him. I like that reference to licentious books. <laughs> I don't know what a licentious book of uh, the 19th century would look like. I can imagine what one now would look like. I don't know if he's referring to <laughs> Victorian pornography. Possibly. I don't know. Although he's quite a sensitive soul, I get the impression. So I don't think, you know, maybe a flash of ankle would be enough to uh, concern William in terms of propriety when it came to uh, sex. <laughs> it seems a bit strange even mentioning the word sex in uh, in the context of this situation. Anyway, 
It's a nice picture of the sights and sounds of that area of Paris, which is pretty well, I suppose, the first thing that William encounters uh, once he's finished his um, stagecoach journey to the city. Incidentally, the Palais Royal, which um, is essentially this whole area that William's talking about in this section of the journal, it's uh, opposite the Louvre and it's obviously a very grand sort of building and palace and uh, now it's several sort of official government organisations are housed in it the Ministry of Culture and the Constitutional Council and things like that but it was originally built for Cardinal Richelieu obviously that's uh, some of the street names that William refers to there mentioned Cardinal Richelieu over the years it was owned by various members of royalty the Duke of Orleans family in particular, they owned it down to approximately the time William was visiting it. Interestingly, he talks about all the variety of shops and the arcades and things and everything that's available there. And you could sort of say that the Palais Royal was indeed the first sort of what we would recognise as a kind of shopping mall today. It is actually described as a thing that kind of changed people's shopping habits they could see the big windows with the goods displayed and they could uh, sort of go window shopping. And, you know, it was as much a social event to go out and look at the shops and maybe not necessarily buy anything in, in a sort of similar way that we might do that today, visiting a large shopping establishment, retail area, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But indeed, this part of the Palais Royal that William's describing with all the shops in was, was indeed kind of a, a bit of a first. So perhaps that does explain why he is impressed so much by all the goods and cafes and variety of uh, retail outlets that he sees there at this time. So it's, it is, as I say, a genuine bit of social history from a person's viewpoint at the time. And obviously you can visit the Palais Royal now. And there is still a large sort of shopping area there and arcades. They're still there today. Obviously, it's had various bits added and taken away from it over the years. But I can't remember when I visited Paris last going around it. So maybe if I go again in the future, I should take a look again, bearing in mind what William's written here. I'm going to stop at this point, as it seems a, a kind of natural break to end this podcast. In the next section, William continues explaining these sights and sounds of Paris that he's seeing and goes into more detail about some of the entertainment on offer too. But I think there's some quite nice sort of nuggets of information there. So I'm, I'm going to leave it at this point on the podcast and continue explaining the next bit. The entry dates are not as clear here, but I reckon he spends at least a good maybe three, four days in Paris, judging by the next few pages of the journal and him talking about the sights and sounds that he sees. He certainly seems to pack a lot in, and most of it seems to be on foot as well, so walking from one place to the other. But I suppose Paris at that time would have been a much smaller place as well, so maybe walking around the city at that time on foot wasn't as uh, a big a task as it would be now. I suppose that's a kind of fairly obvious thing to say, isn't it? But there's Paris at the time, I suppose, is, is much what we would recognise as the, the real sort of tourist areas that he's um, describing around the Seine and the centre of Paris. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this bit of the journey. 
and the journals and i uh, look forward to welcoming you as they say to uh, the next episode thanks very much for listening Thank you.